0: You're listening to the all new Veterinary Podcast. The Vet Chat with fellow vets and hosts Matt Wells and Steve O'Leary. Join us as we speak to a wide variety of industry professionals about hot topics and subjects affecting animal health in New Zealand. Thanks for listening. This week on The Vet Chat, we have June Sue. He's an old classmate of mine and is now a qualified cardiology registrar. So so he's one of two people in the country that you can send your animals to if you have any difficult heart cases. We talked to June about what it was like going through an internship, um, the challenges he faced and what he enjoyed about it. But the main focus of this episode is what he does and his recommendations to vets out in the field if they have a difficult heart case or, or basically any heart case in general. Welcome, June. What did you say, June? I, I don't think I'm allowed to call you a cardiologist. Uh, so I'm still on the path
1: of becoming a cardiologist, um, at least in New Zealand. Um, but um, the actual title is cardiology registrar. Um, other part of the world, um, people will just call me a cardiologist.
0: And can you just sort of explain to us how you... Like sort of your background, like how many years of small you did prior to doing an internship? Um,
1: so I graduated, um, you know, as Steve said, I graduated quite, I guess, still recent, I would say. Um, <laughs> and then I actually went to a general practice in Darwin, Australia, um, where I worked for about four months. But that was actually a bit, um, you know, intense for me. Um, <laughs> so I actually started internship fairly soon after graduation. And I ended up doing three years of internship before getting a residency um, at the Royal Vet College in London.
0: If I remember correctly, your internship was that messy.
1: The first one was, yes. Um, that was a rotating internship where I was rotating through different departments, emergency and anesthesia, surgery and medicine. That's when I really realized I wanted to do cardiology residency. But there's no cardiologist um, at that time anyway in New Zealand. Um, And there were five in Australia. Um, So I ended up going to Sydney for another internship, which led to another internship. So it was three internships altogether. After three years, I was lucky enough to get a residency. Um, So I travelled to London, where I did three years of residency, and I came back. So six years in total since graduation.
0: One of the things I'm curious about, um, having spoken to quite a few people who've done internships, is... I know the pay is not particularly good and with a big student loan um, and at, at your stage of life and stuff, did you find it quite challenging? We don't have to get into the numbers, but did you find it quite challenging in that the pay wasn't great and and you were living in Sydney at one point, which is quite an expensive place to live?
1: <laughs> yeah, um, I have to say the pay isn't great. I, I won't say the numbers because it's different wherever you do internship, but I was seeing the bank account every month and you know, it either would be just st- <laughs> it either would be just static or it would be down <laughs> a little bit. The main, I guess, reason why internship um, pay is low, I, um, it would be because it's a training program, um, and a lot of people might be surprised. There's actually an unpaid internship out there as well, which sounds really harsh, um, but it's um, kind of a boot camp essentially. That they, you know, kind of say that this is how much we're going to spend training you. Um, So you have no pay. Um, But I have to say that, you know, having a low pay is really hard for a lot of people. Um, I was thankfully a bit more financially secured than my internmates at some point. Um, But some of my internmates were a little bit struggling even more. They couldn't travel overseas for an interview, for example, whereas I could still, you know, I had some savings to still do that. Um, So that's the difficulty. So I do feel like one day internship pay will improve i know in sydney even when i was there it was slowly improving um because a lot of interns were fighting for it Um, but it's a slow move i guess
0: i think one of the i was actually talking to a mate about the internship process and i think one of the problems with it is that it's kind of a vicious cycle as you get paid really badly and then when you finally become a specialist yourself, and maybe you're working at Massey or equivalent, then it's sort of like um why, you know, why should these juniors now get paid well? And and I don't think being a training progr- program, I don't think it, they necessarily should be getting paid amazingly, but it would be nice to t- see internships where they're getting paid at least equivalent to a new grad. You've done a lot of training just to get to that point, and it must be pretty challenging.
1: Yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree. Just because we got paid low doesn't mean the future generation should be paid the same, you know what I mean? So, um a lot of my intern mates at least when I was doing internship were very um, you know, speak, you know, they we're sharing our thoughts purely from all these generations of interns speaking out and, you know, requesting more holidays so we can at least go overseas for interview at least um or go and visit family sometime. Um so um, I think we are making a change, but it, it really is a slow process.
0: Yeah. And from what, what I understand of internships, you're still working pretty hard. It's not like a uh, back at uni where you turn up to lectures and then disappear. Um, you're, you're pretty much doing a full-time job from what I understand.
1: Yeah. It's uh, long hours. It's kind of like uh, making you go on a marathon and making you run really fast, even from the beginning. Um, and just seeing what happens, really. Um, but yeah, it's it's a pretty intense internship. Um, but you get to work with so many amazing people um, who has obviously gone through internship themselves and in residency. So um, they know um, how to really support you mentally um, and how to support you by um, kind of teaching you and making your job more rewarding. Um, so I honestly loved my internship programs, um, despite the hours and the low pay and a little bit of struggle at times. Uh, So I I still really enjoyed it. So um, I I do feel that if anyone is interested in specialising, at least try one internship, and they might really
0: enjoy it. So talking about enjoyment, what was it about cardiology in particular that made you want to go down that line?
1: So there's a few reasons. Um, I guess cardiology is somewhat simple in a way that it's one organ that's pumping, you know, the body. You know, if you actually think about pumping ability it's relatively simple but at the same time it's so complex the way that they um, kind of change in different physiological challenges is so um, amazing and intriguing for me Um, so I always had some interest um, but when I was doing internship and seeing more cases and being exposed to all these people um, regardless of whether they're specialists in cardiology or other field um, I was realizing all the cases that I really enjoyed were actually cardiac to some degree, uh, so I kind of knew um, by heart that uh, um, that I wanted to become a cardiologist. <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, so that's when it all started, and I, you know, honestly, don't regret it. I, I still love my job. Um, you know, every year there's more findings and more research coming out, and it's so interesting in what we can do and what you know how much understanding we can improve as well.
0: And so science is really cool too. And it's yeah definitely a growing field in um, the vet space. Yes. Um, so do you think that um, all that work has been worth the effort now that you're actually practicing?
1: Yeah. I mean, there were times during the training that, you know, you feel a bit discouraged and, you know, think re- you review your career choice essentially. Um, but now it's all done. I have to say there really is light at the end of the tunnel. I honestly, you know, love my job and love the cases I'm seeing, love the clients and love what I can do to, you know, save those pets as well. So I I really enjoy, you know, the result really, maybe not so much the path to some degree, but yeah, I love the result.
0: That's good to hear. And from those of you who don't know, June and I went to uni together, I think we graduated in 2013. Yes. Um, So he's still fairly young. And while I can imagine doing an internship and getting paid pretty poorly and and the stresses of an internship and residency must have been pretty challenging, you've hopefully got plenty of years ahead of you to to enjoy this. So for the average GP smallies vets, um, can you sort of tell them what are the most common things you see in your job? Um, so I guess in New Zealand, um,
1: I'm still seeing the common diseases that um, would be seen anywhere in the world. Um, so in dogs, mitral valve degeneration is a very common disease I'm still seeing in New Zealand. Um, in cats, um, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy um, is very common. I recently reviewed the the disease diagnosis that I've made um, since I started. You know, there's still the majority of the diseases. So Um, what we've been taught and what we are kind of practicing would still be very much the same. Um, But interestingly, I have to say that it might be the difference in genetic population or difference in um, the, you know, other environmental factors maybe. Um, But in cats, um, I'm seeing a lot of different cardiomyopathy forms as well, and particularly in Burmese cats or other oriental breeds. Uh, which is supposed to be very rare in other places in the world. Management is similar, but you know, defining them is different because they may have different genetic component. So it is very intriguing that you know, New Zealand population might be a little bit different to other part of the world. And in dogs, um, respiratory disease and um, pulmonary hypertension are, seems to be a little bit more prevalent than what I'm used to. You know, may suggest that there may be some environmental factors. Um, but they're not the majority and I'm not seeing hundreds of them but it just seems to be a little bit more common than what I've what I've been used to um, in London and Sydney so yeah I mean if you see interesting cases um, especially those um, Burmese cats with heart failure um, I think getting an input from a cardiologist uh, would be quite a useful thing to do mainly because better defining them would be beneficial for those population and Uh, Because it's not well described in the world, if we do them, New Zealand will be the first. So I think it'll be something cool to do.
0: Oh, that's exciting. So um, what is there a specific disease that you're seeing in Burmese cats?
1: Yeah, so they seem to have this muscle band um, crossing the left ventricle, uh, which over time um, kind of dies off and becomes scar tissues. And that tends to restrict the motion of the left ventricle. Uh, we call it endomyocardial form of restricted cardiomyopathy or ERCM for short because it's quite mouthful um, and i've seen <laughs> at least 5 cats since i started and i've only come back in august last year so it's actually quite you know although it's not you know as common as you would think it compared to the rest of the world where we were seeing maybe one cat in one year it's so much more common and we don't really understand the true genetic component um, or anything just because of how rare it is. Yeah, I would try to diagnose more if
0: possible. I guess one thing um, that probably makes you realise is that the population of all these um, breeds in New Zealand is quite small. So you've potentially got a really small gene pool of Burmese cats in New Zealand, um, especially now with COVID making it even harder for people to, to travel. So you know, potentially there's, um, uh, I don't want to say inbreeding, but um, a very small gene pool um, of Burmese cats. So maybe for whatever reason, our gene pool of Burmese cats has got a bit of an issue with their hearts.
1: Um, I guess I, I've been speaking with the breeders as well in New Zealand and uh, they are very um, open to um, collaborating with me and screen these Burmese cats. So I think breeders are um, trying to work around this information that I've been giving to them. Uh, which is really great Uh, I think it's better to work together um, as a team so we can kind of improve the future generation of cats um, in terms of their health but yeah absolutely I'm not sure exactly what the breeding population has been so uh, maybe there has been a smaller pool.
0: With the cases of um, the heart issue in the Burmese cats um, what sort of age are you seeing them presenting?
1: Uh, Really all over the age group. One of the medics that I'm working with at the moment actually has a Burmese cat with the same disease. Um, And his cat went into failure by age of six months, Uh, whereas the other cats that I... Yeah, and the other cats I've diagnosed uh, went into failure by about seven or eight years of age. Um, So it's a bit variable. Um, But this muscle band, uh, we expect them to be born with it. So even in a young cat, you know, kitten... Uh, we expect to see some changes in the ventricle if you do a careful echo. Um, so that's when um, you know having that cardiology experience would come in handy, I think, because we have we have been trained quite intensely um, on how to screen those little subtle findings. So I know there's another cardiologist called Jackie Huxley near the Palmerston North area, um, and she and I've been um, in contact many times. Um, And she's another person that um, a vet can approach too um, if there's any interesting cardiac cases.
0: That's good to know. So with the um, cases with the Burmese cats, is it actually something that you can treat? At the moment,
1: um, the treatment is to slow down the heart rate and the contractility to some degree to help the heart not injure itself. Um, But we don't really know how effective it is Um, Because, again, we don't really have any data to support our speculation or hypothesis. So um, everything is in the air. Once they go into failure, um, the treatment is literally the same as um, congestive heart failure and HCM. Um, Diuretics, um, clopidogrel, um, and uh, managing the congestive heart failure like that. Uh, But preclinical stage is a bit tricky.
0: Going back to the um, question about um, the things that you're seeing commonly, in your job are they mostly stuff that you think should be referred or are there some cases where you're getting fairly basic heart issues getting referred quite quickly like uh, do you think gps are like where, where do they sit are they are they handing them to you too quickly or handing them to you when yeah i, I think i
1: know yeah <laughs> yeah um so in terms of um the Case, um, cases that are being referred to me, um, I do feel that majority have been very appropriate. If anything, um, a lot of general practitioners um, are managing them um, a bit longer than what I would have been expecting them to. Usually, um, when we diagnose a cardiac condition, or um, you know, once we start management, we actually still work together as a general, with a general practitioner. So we don't always take the full control, especially if the General practitioner feels comfortable and is happy to discuss cases with us because ultimately our aim is the you know quality of life of the patient and continuity for the client. So I guess as an example, um, cases that you know would come to us um, would be a murmur investigation, which will be an elective kind of murmur investigation, um, and even if we do echo and they come out as completely normal and the murmur was due to physiological reason. You wouldn't have known that without an echo. So I honestly would still encourage, you know, if there's a new murmur, still get them screened if a client is okay to go to a cardiologist or even a radiologist, um, depending on the region. But those cases where they had a murmur for a while, uh, hasn't actually been offered to do an echo. Five years later, collapsing in heart failure, I think they could have been picked up earlier. That's the only difference, yeah.
0: Well, it's a good reminder to um, GP Small um, practitioners that if clients are, at the end of the day, it comes down to client um, choice and, and we've got to at least offer them the best service. Obviously, money is going to be a limiting factor for some people, but it's just a good reminder, I guess, that at the end of the day, we're not specialists. And when you've got someone like yourself and, what is it, Jackie? Uh, Jackie? Yes rather figure out early on in the piece what's going on um, than just sort of um, doing guesswork and then waiting for. At the end of the day, our diagnosis is very, very limited as a GP, especially if you're not doing an echo. And is it fair to say that with an echo, it tells you a lot more information than um, just what a, a murmur would tell you?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is there any advice that you would give other than to, um, I mean, obviously um, with your job, you want people to refer cases to you but is there any other advice that you would give to small E vets in the field
1: yeah I, I guess um the main advice would be that now jackie and i'm here in new zealand feel free to approach us um because even if you have been managing this case for you know six to twelve months or longer perhaps sometimes you can kind of still provide some input Jackie has been working in general practice for a long time too, I think. And I've been in general practice for four months, but um, I still know how difficult um, the job is. Um, So we understand um, and, you know, we've been interns. We didn't just naturally come to become a cardiologist. So um, I I think we kind of know how to, um, you know, manage cases um, that has been managed for a long time. Even if you have any little questions, just approach us. Again, I think another thing to realize is that there's ongoing research and science in all over the world. And even those things that we have been doing routinely for years and years, like giving ACE inhibitors to all these cats and dogs with heart disease, um, those are constantly being challenged. And there has been multiple studies over the past year or two um, that came out showing that ACE inhibitors is not effective in cats and dogs with heart disease um, in prolonging their survival. You know, without kind of actively reading cardio journals, you wouldn't really know. So sometimes just running a case by us, we might say, hey, you know, there's actually a new research that came out last month. You might want to stop this medication. So um, for those reasons, it still is nice to check to us.
0: And you're definitely going to be a better resource than our vague memory of fourth year lectures. (laughs) So uh... Yeah, like four cardio lectures, I think, was it? Yeah, it was very little, I think. And having been in the same hall and um, same vet class as June, I can tell you he's a very nice and very approachable person. (laughs) So definitely give him a call. We'll get into this a bit later anyway, but can you tell our listeners whereabouts you're working um, and how best to reach you? Yes, I'm working at the
1: Animal Referral Centre, ARC for short, um, in Albany, Auckland. You can approach me by um, just giving a phone call or sending me an email. You can send it to the reception and just put attention um, June um, and they will kind of forward it directly to me. Um, I'm currently just working part time at the moment, um, Monday, Tuesday and Fridays. So um, I may not be able to reply in between, but um, I'll reply as soon as I can. As previously mentioned, um, the exam was canceled last year, so it's happening this year. So I'll be busy studying between April and May. Um, so um, I may not be contactable during that time, but hopefully um, I'll pass in one go and New Zealand will finally let me call myself as a cardiologist.
0: So is the part-time mostly based on the fact that you're studying or is it a demand thing in terms of um, how much work you're actually getting?
1: It's a bit of both, I have to say. So because there hasn't been a cardiologist um, that you know it, it is kind of just residing in one centre before. Um, Jackie, for example, is mobile, so she will go to multiple regions. We just weren't sure exactly, you know, the case demand or um, caseload that I'll be expected to see. So from that point of view, um, you know, the hospital directors and I agreed that we would like to start with part time and see where we go. And I actually suggested it first because after that six years of training, um, I kind of, kind of wanted to enjoy life a bit. Um so um uh, it just gives Fair me, enough. Yeah. Yeah, it just gives me more opportunity to spend some time with the family and friends and enjoy um outdoors.
0: Remind me what um, part of Auckland you're based in?
1: Um so it's in Albany in Auckland. Um I'm living far north, um near Wainui, which is near Silverdale. Uh but it's close to the beach still, so I can still go out, uh go for a swim. So I've never gone out to swim every single day in my entire life until I came back to New Zealand this time. So it's it's really nice.
0: Well, it's good to know because um, I know a lot of people that do internships and residencies and you get flogged. Um, and at some point, it's uh, good to hear that you're actually finding a bit of balance in your life. Yes. Going back to, you know, what vets can do in the field other than sending you, uh, like referring to you for, or calling you for advice or referring cases, are there any sort of basic tips that you can give them in terms of like basic diagnostic tips or basic um, stuff they can do in the physical exam to improve what they're doing? Because um, for a lot of people, um, I guess we don't see a huge deal of cases. Um, and so you're sort of partly relying on what you learnt at uni and partly winging it. So without without a specialist's advice, um, what would you recommend to, to GPs?
1: I think that is,
0: um, I have to say, physical
1: exam is... The most powerful tool in dogs. It's one thing that, you know, physical exam is something that gets emphasized so much during the training program for cardiology because careful cardiac auscultation gives you so much information. We kind of already know what disease we're dealing with by the time we're about to echo, Um, but echo is just for confirmation and assessing the severity of the disease. So for dogs, um, I really um, would emphasize that try to localize where the murmur is the loudest um, try to grade the murmur, uh, which gives you some idea of the severity of the disease. Here, if there's any arrhythmias and pulse deficits.
0: Can you just remind people what the grading system is for for hearts?
1: Yeah, um, so we grade murmurs from grade one to six. There are slightly different grading systems out there, um, but I can say that the commonly used grading system is that uh, one is a very quiet murmur, that is very focal as well. So if you just change the position of the stethoscope, you may lose that murmur and just hear the heart sound. Um, grade two is when the, when it's louder, but it's still focal. So if you move the stethoscope away, you'll still lose the murmur, but it's still you know a bit louder than grade one. Grade three is when it's starting to radiate. So for you know small breed dogs where they tend to get mitral valve disease. If you listen to the left side and you hear a murmur, you put the stethoscope a bit higher up or onto the right side and you still hear the murmur, that's grade three or higher. Four is when the radiating murmur starts to become as loud as the um, point of main uh, maximum intensity. Um, So the original murmur is radiating so loud to the other side, for example, would be grade four. Five is when you actually feel a thrill. And if you haven't felt a thrill before, it literally feels like a phone vibrating. Sometimes it's not as dramatic as you know you just holding the phone, but just try to imagine you have multiple clothes on and the phone's vibrating in your pocket, I, I guess, um, and you still feel it. So that's still a thrill. So that's great five or higher. And lastly, the six is uh, when you put the stethoscope maybe a centimeter away from the chest, and you still hear the murmur, that's six. So it's a very loud murmur. In dogs, at least, um, in majority of the conditions that they get, um, the murmur intensity does correlate with the severity of the heart disease. Um, so it's a very you know, useful information to know, and especially if you're documenting the severity of mitral um, disease, then um, you listen to a murmur, it's grade three one year, next, next year it's grade five, you know it's likely to have progressed.
0: So it gives you that information as well. Going back to what you were saying about the, um, the physical exam, you, you mentioned about the murmur and then you were um, talking about um, um, arrhythmias. Um,
1: so in terms of the um, murmurs and arrhythmias, it gives you so much information. And if you can localise the murmur as well, um, it gives you the differential diagnosis and using the history and the signalment and your physically examined findings, you can actually work out what disease the dog will have. So just as a brief recap, we uh, localize the murmur into three regions, mainly in dogs, left heart base or left epic um, epical or left apex, which is lower down. And then the right side, because right side kind of wraps around the um, cranial portion of the heart. So it's hard to d- say right base or right apex so we just say the right side. Um, If you have a left epical systolic murmur which is by far the most common murmur we'll hear, you're dealing with mostly the mitral valve disease uh, which can be endocarditis, dysplasia which is a congenital heart disease that puppies are born with or degenerative process which is a condition that a lot of dogs will eventually get Um, and then the last differential of the left epical systolic murmur is dilated cardiomyopathy uh, which is more common in bigger, you know, larger size dogs, um, but they don't really have an intrinsic mitral valve disease. So the murmur intensity tends to be grade three or lower. So given that information, um, as an example, if you have a dog that is, a, you know, eight years old, Cavalier King Charles comes to you for vaccination, you hear a grade four out of six left apical systolic murmur. DCM is very unlikely because it's so loud. Dysplasia is unlikely to if it never had memory before. Endocarditis is also very unlikely because it, if it's not sick. So you're left with one differential. So uh, that's why um, physical exam is so useful. Um, and it narrows down the differential just purely from clinical exam without even an echo. Should I just go through the differentials of others quickly as well? So left base is actually more common in small, small younger dogs, I guess, because we're dealing with congenital heart disease. Um, so if you have a loud left basilar systolic murmur, um, you're likely to be dealing with three possibilities. The pulmonic stenosis, which is narrowing of the pulmonic valve, which causes obstruction there. You could be dealing with aortic stenosis, or you could be dealing with a, a congenital heart disease called tetralogy, which um, I'm sure a lot of us remember from fourth years in vesicle. Uh, it's a component of four different conditions, but it in, involves pulmonic stenosis. Um, but a soft uh, left basilar systolic murmur can be due to physiological, so uh, you know, hyper-energetic dogs or athletic breeds. Greyhounds and boxers typically have a very soft left basilar systolic murmur, or it could be an inter septal defect. Um, so I would still recommend echoing even a soft murmur, but still it could be a benign finding. Um, and lastly, the right side is systolic murmur, you, you're dealing with um, either a VSD, Um, Or you're dealing with tricuspid valve disease, uh, which might be leaking um, because of pulmonary hypertension. Um, But tricuspid valve disease, if it is intrinsic disease of the valve itself, um, the differential is very similar to mitral valve. It's degeneration, endocarditis or dysplasia, even though endocarditis is less common in that valve in dogs and
0: cats. And then moving on to the the common things you see in um, cats, what would those be? So cats, um, because they get cardiomyopathy
1: primarily, um, and they aren't always detectable on physical exam, um, there has been multiple different ways we kind of guide um, general practitioners to recognize what are the high-risk patients um, or which cats are likely to have the disease. Physical exam still plays a good role um, because if you hear a gallop sound, or a murmur, um, in a, especially in an older cat, it's making you a bit more suspicious. If you have an arrhythmia, that's very, very suspicious that they have heart disease. Um, and lastly, because they can still have a murmur and still have a normal heart and vice versa, we actually really recommend getting some lab work I've been kind of visiting a few Auckland practices um, since I started and a lot of practices are starting to use this too. But this blood test called anti-proBNP is a you know, test that gets released or uh, well, it's a hormone that gets released when the heart's starting to go through a st- stretch or stress. And in cats with cardiomyopathy...
0: Is that in both cats and dogs or just cats? It's both cats
1: and dogs, but it's um, a lot more accurate and applicable in cats Um, because dogs have so much variation in what is normal, whereas cats the normal range is much narrower. So um the IDEX has um generated even a SNAP test for antipropion P, which you can purchase and leave it in your clinic and just do it as a routine before dental, for example, before any, you know, routine anesthesia do you know the chance of the cat having heart disease is high or low so yeah I, I really recommend getting this blood test done i have no association with idex i have to say but uh, it's still you know
0: very very useful no conflict of interest yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> we sort of got a, bit, a little bit sidetracked there but um, have we covered all the the main things that you'd see in cats yes uh, the, the main conditions that a gp would see
1: Yeah, so I guess the common conditions that they would see would be cardiomyopathy, which would be HCM or hypertrophic cardiomyopathy as the most common form. In New Zealand, again, Burmese cats, if you see them, might have different form. Management is similar or we don't really know yet at this time. But once they go into congestive heart failure, um, the management is still um, similar. So in general practice, I guess cardiac emergencies might be congestive heart failure where cats and dogs will present to you with respiratory distress or abdominal distension if it's right-sided failure. They might come to you with frequent collapsing episodes, uh, which on careful history taking and assessment, you know, it's unlikely to be neurological. Or you might be um, presented with pericardial effusion. Um, so I, I think those would be the common emergencies that you might be dealing with. For emergencies, it's a bit different to just doing a routine cardiac assessment because you're a bit limited on how much you can assess, especially if they are so struggling to breathe. For example, you know, just go with the patient's um, kind of um, stability. So don't push them. Um, but eventually, if you do finish the physical exam and still manage to get all the information we already chatted about, um, you will still be able to narrow down the differentials a lot. Yeah, the main thing I would like to just say is that try not to stress cats out, um, especially if they present with respiratory distress. I have seen cats actually die uh, when someone was trying to place an IV catheter in, uh, which is, you know, absolutely appropriate thing to do for stabilization. But um, that cat was just on the verge of struggling, um, and you don't really want to see that and traumatize
0: everyone in the hospital. So, is it, is it fair to say that in those situations where they're very stressed, maybe the best thing to do is just chuck them in an oxygen cage and wait for them to calm down a little bit?
1: Absolutely, yeah, I would do that, and also consider giving a little bit of butophanol. Um You can give it sub am uh, ideally. Um, subcutaneous is a little bit difficult to um, predict in terms of how quickly it'll take effect. Um, especially if the heart's not working well and the perfusion isn't as good as in
0: a normal cat or a dog. Um, So ideally, I would just give it IM. So in terms of a um, a collapsed dog in a similar situation, I know they don't go into the same sort of levels of respiratory distress, but would it be sort of the same where you'd be putting them onto oxygen and would you give them butorphanol as well or is it a little bit different for dogs?
1: Um, If a dog looks distressed, I would still give bitophenol when they first come in because, you know, it's, it's a safe safe sedation. Um, and even the car journey can be quite stressful for them. It also gives you some chance to do a proper physical exam or radiographs, for example. Um, so it, it's, it's a good overall um, kind of therapy and um, sedation, essentially. But if a dog comes to you collapsed, um, you might want to check for pericardial effusion and, you know, check if the pulses are good and roll out other kind of causes of collapse, which may not only be, you know, cardiac. Um, They may be blood work abnormalities. It may be very anemic. Um, So thorough physical exam is really important in that case too. But yes, I would give it some time, um, bitofenol if it's cardiac and if the
0: dog is struggling as well. Cheers for the um, good advice. (laughs) It is good advice. I hope so anyway. (laughs) Is there some um, general recommendations you would make to owners in general to, to heart cases, I'm not talking specific um, conditions, but are there some uh, some general pieces of advice you can give, especially early on in the um, the piece when they may be not at the stage that you feel like they need to be referred, um, maybe early heart, heart disease, is there any advice that you would give to owners um, as to what they can do for their pets to sort of slow down the progression and or just help their general quality of life?
1: it's one of those fields where um oh it's actually one of the questions i get asked a lot by clients but um, it's one of those areas we actually don't have much information i guess in in dogs with heart disease that is preclinical, um, even cats as well regardless of the severity um, even if they're on at high risk of heart failure or low risk um, i actually just say to treat the cat and the dog as per normal as much as possible Um, Obviously, for the owner's perspective, um, they have a heart condition, so it's hard to kind of, you know, make them go out for a run or a walk as per normal. I kind of see dogs and cats a bit like a little kid um, to some degree that they don't really know what they have. So once they don't, you know, if they don't feel anything, they will just pretend that, you know, want to go for a walk. They want to go out and roam the town. Um, so restricting those may actually be detrimental or counteractive for the quality of life. Um, but if they do develop any symptoms, so for example, the owner has just resumed a normal exercise and it in, it actually was a lot of runs and the dog has a fainting episode, then we know for sure then we will not go that far next time. But until then, I would still recommend um, just kind of try their best to treat them as per normal um, of course, there may be some complication that may happen, again, like fainting, or they may go into failure eventually, but they will happen eventually anyway, um, regardless of them um, just keeping them indoors all the time. Nutrition is something I do mention too. Um, they, um, you know, with heart disease, we don't really have a good um, guideline um, on how to best manage the nutrition in cats and dogs. Um, again, that kind of comes down to um, the fact that they just would want to eat whatever food they want to eat. You know, you can't really force down a healthy meal to them. You know, I would still give them a normal diet and see what happens. Um, if they lose so much muscle, um, which can happen with advanced heart disease, uh, we can give some supplements or give change the diet even if we need to. Um, but that can be quite challenging if they're fussy and appetite to begin with.
0: Nothing else that jumps to mind in terms of on, on that front.
1: Yeah, unfortunately, there's not much else to add. I mean, um, you know, just being aware of the disease process um, and being, um, you know, well-educated is something I would really, um, you know, hope to achieve um, in in client communication as well. In case an owner wants more information, there's actually um, a Facebook group and an online um, forum called Mighty Hearts in Dogs. Um, and they are, um, you know, the the group involves all the clients and um, some some vets um, who owned um, dogs with mitral valve degeneration. And it's more designed to promote that the surgical option exists in dogs with mitral valve degener- degeneration, which is um, something we can always talk about. They also provide support for those clients. Um, they share information. So um, having that group, um, I've been um, told by a lot of clients that it's such a nice group to have. They just share cases and um, they just support each other. So because there's no much information in how to best manage the quality of life in preclinical stage, um, I would be actually focusing more on uh, making sure that the dog seems happy or the cat seems happy, keep up the nutrition and um, just kind of spend time in reading up the disease and be aware of what could happen in the future.
0: So you don't suggest they just go onto Google and, Find their advice on there.
1: Um, I mean, <laughs> that's always difficult because sometimes they're written by non vets, but Mighty Hats pretty
0: pretty accurate for um, dogs. Either in your residency or since um, kind of semi qualifying, what is the most interesting case that you've seen?
1: I've seen quite a f- um, few cool cases. Sometimes it's because they are so rare, or the way that they present may be um, you know quite unusual. Um, But there's actually a very funny case that I saw during a cardio internship. So this owner um, took his little dog, which is a terrier, um, to a beach house um, because he was on holiday. Um, And he arrived and he was unpacking and he started to hear this weird noise coming from the room. Um, So he was trying to investigate where the noise was coming from. And he realized that this weird whooping noise was coming from the dog. Um, So he took the dog to the local vet clinic and they, you know, did a full physical exam and found out that it it was actually a very loud heart murmur. So it sounded like, I don't know if you um, watch Futurama, um, but there's a character called Zoidberg.
0: A long time ago. Yeah.
1: And then this like alien creature does like, you know, like (laughs) it makes this little noise. It literally sounds like that. So um, yeah, it was constantly coming from the dog. So they um, kind of rushed um, to see a cardiologist. There's some type of murmur that I'll just kind of explain now that we call it as a musical murmur. Um, And the reason is because all the valve apparatus starts to vibrate, kind of like a violin. So it creates that high frequency musical type of murmur. And that actually doesn't correlate with the disease severity. It's often a mild disease. It's often a good sign. Anyway, came in and we're listening and we confirmed it was a musical murmur. We echoed, confirmed that it was a very early mitral valve degeneration. But yeah, the fact that the reason why the dog came to the vet clinic was the fact that the owner could hear a murmur across the room. It's just, I don't know, I found it very hysterical. So (laughs) that's the best case I still remember to
0: this day. Especially considering that um, the dog wasn't, you know, it didn't sound like the dog was in serious in a serious heart condition. It's quite unique. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um. Lastly, Joan, um, I know we mentioned this earlier, but just to sort of reiterate, where can we find out more about you? And for vets looking to refer cases, where can we find you? And what's your best contact details? So you can either just call
1: or email the animal referral center and just put if you're emailing just put attention june um or cardiology and they'll just forward the email to me you can actually email me directly as well which is um jseo7 at arcvets.co.nz and it'll just come directly to my email box again i you know it's it's no it's not possible for me to go through all the you know cardiac tips um, from this um, interview so um, if you have any little questions or anything else that you want me to kind of share just email me and i'm happy to help out as steve has referenced i'm approachable um, and (laughs) i will not judge and uh, yeah
0: so just email me (laughs) that was june sue he's a qualified cardiology registrar and you can find him at the animal referral center in auckland Thanks for listening to The Vet Chat with Matt Wells and Steve O'Leary. This show is proudly supported by Verbeck. If you want to find out more, go to nz.verbeck.com forward slash podcast.